There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with today's hosts, just today's Greg and Colin. Greg? For a change. For a change, yep. Maybe on episode 74, it's not quite a change. It's maybe a stable or a yep. staple. That's right. Last week, we continued our discussion about estate planning. We talked about, I can't remember what we call it, something like, I'm dead now. I sure hope I was organized or something like exactly. that. Exactly. And listen, anybody that wants to know about how to be organized in preparation of their estate planning, go back and listen to that one. But today we're going to talk about things that are back in the headlines. We get a lot of calls and questions from clients, friends, relatives about things that are in the news. And there's a lot. So we're going to tackle some of those today. Greg, you might have noticed there's some things like Chinese property developers and bonds maybe defaulting as right. an item. We've heard a lot about inflation worries, both home and abroad, maybe interest rates, debt ceiling has come up, most notably in the US, foreign exchange valuations, global supply chain issues. I mean, we could go on and on, but Greg, where do you want to start this conversation today? Let's dive in. Although, just as you were reading all those things, it occurred to me, people always talk about there's this saying that the stock market climbs a wall of worry. And all of the things you mentioned, and we're going to be talking about in a little bit detail, they're all things to be worried about. And it's one of those things that there's always, if you want to worry about things, things that could be detrimental to the stock market, there's tons of things out there. In fact, just about everything out there is bad news. It's not usually good news. Good news doesn't make the headlines. Let's talk about these things because this is what's getting people's attention and causing them to worry. So well, you, you never see a headline that says things are pretty good right now. No, no that's right. Panic. No news today. Nothing bad happened and have a good day. You mentioned Chinese property developers and let's say three weeks ago, who among us had ever heard of Evergrande? I know I hadn't. No, nope, not a nope. chance. No, probably not too many people in this neck of the woods. Well, Evergrande, as it turns out, is one of China's largest real estate developers. And it's also one of the world's largest businesses by revenue. They employ about 200,000 people, making them a very big company. And it was founded by a Chinese billionaire, uh, probably not pronouncing this right, Su Jian. And he was once actually China's richest man. So the company made its name in residential property, but it also has investments all over the place, electric vehicles, food and beverage, sports and theme parks, a very diverse company now, but certainly most of its business in residential property. And as it grew, it financed much of its growth through debt and it reportedly has over something like $300 billion in debt. Which isn't unusual for companies to finance their growth through debt. They Not at all. They only issue stock or debt. That's right. So what happened though is a couple of weeks ago, the company disclosed to investors that it might default on some loans that were coming due if it was forced to raise money quickly. And so it sold some assets to cover some loan payments coming due, but many people are concerned that they won't be able to meet the obligations because of the loan maturities that are coming up fairly rapidly in the next year or so. So what happened? Well, the bond ratings agencies immediately downgraded the company's debt, which has lots of ramifications, obviously. It inhibits their ability to raise more money through debt and also has a 
fairly detrimental effect on the stock price. So these company shares trade on the Hong Kong market, and the shares have fallen about 85% this year. Pretty significant. Pretty significant, and, and in stark contrast to, as you know, there's been a real real estate boom over the last couple of years. COVID-inspired in many cases, and a lot of real estate companies are doing extremely well, but obviously debt is a big issue. So at this point in the whole Evergrande issue, the Chinese government has stepped in to stabilize the housing markets because they need to protect thousands of people who have purchased apartments that are as yet unfinished, and they also have to protect workers in the housing industry, which apparently makes up about 20% of the urban workforce in China. So this is a big deal. This is a big deal in China. Yes. But remember, China is also a communist country. True. So it's not a free market. That's right. Yet it is the second largest economy in the world. And so if Evergrande was to fail, there would certainly be cascading effects on the Chinese economy. What typically happens in situations like this is lending standards get tougher, making it harder for companies, other companies, to get access to credit, which leads to a credit crunch, which we're familiar with from... 2008, 2009. But wait, we have to emphasize that the issue there is not the same as the issue in 2008, 2009, which was a global credit crisis. Exactly. So this definitely would have a big impact on the Chinese economy. Investors would probably start to pull money or want to pull money from the Chinese stock markets as they see that as less attractive. And in the case of Evergrande specifically, Evergrande has borrowed money from something like, I don't know, 170 different lenders which means any kind of default by Evergrande or a bankruptcy would certainly send ripples through the entire financial sector. So absolutely bad news for the Chinese economy if Evergrande were to go under. But obviously, there would also be ripple effects that were felt around the world, as I say, because of China being the second largest economy and significant trade partner to most other countries in the world. Second largest economy, but if you look at the global market capitalization by stock market... China, I believe, is less than 3% of the That's world. That's right. Not a big chunk of the global stock market. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm not trying to say there wouldn't be impact, but yes. it might not be as much as people think it might. Let's talk about something else. We've been hearing a lot about inflation and interest rate levels. There's lots of articles that are out there on this. They come out almost every day. I mean, oh, you yeah. see them all the time. For sure. Now, it's a funny thing, though, because as a stock market investor, and I've had this conversation with many people over the last few weeks, as a stock market investor, we actually want some inflation. As a consumer, we don't. There's a bit of a paradox there. It's a funny equation because inflation leads to higher corporate earnings and stocks are priced based on the future earnings expectations or cash flows of a company. That's, in theory, how a stock is priced based yep. off their future cash flows. Exactly. So during times of inflation, you expect those earnings to go up. So therefore, you expect the future cash flows to go up. So therefore, you expect the stock price to go up. That's right. Within reason. And that's why you say a little bit of inflation as opposed to a lot of inflation. That's right. Well, listen, too much of anything is not good. So as an investor, a little inflation means a higher expected rate of return in stocks. Now, the current inflation rate in Canada is approximated to be around 5%, which is a little more than double what the normal inflation rate is. So some are calling this a period of hyperinflation. But remember, in March of 2020, and I know we've talked about this in a few other episodes we didn't have any inflation due to the global economic lockdown. We actually had three months of deflation. That's right. So that is why a lot of people are calling this a period of transitory inflation, where it's just making up for that period of deflation in 2020. And this is just sort of a catch-up period. They call that the base effect. So when you're comparing 
to a year ago period that happened to be very low or either in deflation, then it's going to make prices today seem a lot higher. But they might not be higher than they were two years ago or a lot. They wouldn't be 5% maybe higher than they were two years ago. But relative to one year ago, they're definitely higher. That's right. Because central banks monitor and adjust money supply to deal with inflation. That's what they do with the money supply. It's one of the tools they use. So the general target is around 2% for a rate of annual inflation. So whenever you hear the U.S. Federal Reserve or the Bank of Canada comment on their inflationary targets, it's usually around 2%. But there are periods of time, as we just mentioned, when inflation is good. So when the economy is not running at capacity, meaning there is an unused labor or resources, inflation theoretically helps increase production. So more dollars translate to more spending which equates to more aggregated demand. So, Greg, more demand in turn triggers more production to meet that demand. So things kind of get better. And there's times when inflation is bad because inflation, as we talked about, erodes purchasing power or how much of something can be purchased with the currency because inflation erodes the value of cash. So if you're on a fixed spending budget, historically you were getting, I don't know, some rate of return on term deposits and you're using that to pay for your groceries, but now interest rates are hovering close to zero and term deposits are hovering close to zero and your groceries have gone up 20%. That's what they talk about eroding purchasing power. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. So what does this all mean to current interest rates? Because there is a link. Now the Bank of England has just told the market to brace for some interest rate hikes. It's thought they may do this because inflation in England is running around 4%, which is a little lower than in Canada, actually. And they believe that an interest rate hike will slow things down a little. So there was a Bloomberg article posted just October 12th, and I quote, a combination of higher energy prices, supply chain disruptions, and rising wages in some industries has undercut the Bank of England's original view that much of the jump in prices will prove transitory. The central bank last month said it expects inflation to exceed 4% in the last quarter, more than double its target. That's big. Well, it is, but, and that's what's happening here too. So where am I going with this, Greg? Should we expect some interest rate movements from the Bank of Canada, the U.S. Federal Reserve, things of that? What do you think? I would think so. The thing everyone is following right now is step one, which is not necessarily raising interest rates, but cutting back on the quantitative easing, which we've talked about in the past. And so this massive amount of bond buying by central banks, which tends to keep interest rates down in the longer terms, not just the overnight rate, but longer term interest rates. So they're going to slow that process down. And by slowing that process, that's obviously going to reduce demand because they're purchasing a lot of these securities and that could cause interest rates, prices to fall and interest rates to start to creep up. And what's going to happen is interest rates are creeping up anyway, because the central bank can't completely control long-term interest rates. And so we've seen in Canada and the U S 10 year bond yields are up to one and a half to 1.6% again. And they were 1.2% just a couple months ago. And so the market will set those interest rates, even if the central banks don't do anything because those rates are set on inflation expectations. And if you expect inflation to be higher, then interest rates will move higher to allow investors to earn a real return. Yeah, but I mean, do we really care? I know that's a flippant answer, but in Canada, the overnight lending rate between the Bank of Canada and the big banks is 0.25%. So if they raise it to 0.5%, some would say, wow, they doubled the interest rate overnight, or the interest rate went up 100%. 
But it went from 0.25 to 0.5. Which is the typical increment anyway. So it seems like a lot on a relative basis, but it's not a lot in absolute. The banks like to see a steeper yield curve. And so all of that would be good for the banks. So listen, this stuff is super important. I'm not trying to say just ignore it, but just know that it's not like we're the only ones talking about inflation and interest rates. No, absolutely. And the whole purpose of this episode is just just be aware of what's being talked about in the news and see what implications that has for all of us. But I like that when people say, oh yeah, but it went up 100%. Yeah, it went from 0.25 to 0.5. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Doubled overnight. (laughs) Let's move on. Another thing that people have been hearing a lot of in the news lately with regards to the US, and it was just resolved, I believe, yesterday, is this thing about the debt ceiling. So what exactly is this debt ceiling that caused such a commotion in Washington and For anybody that follows the politics saw that the Democrats, they needed to increase the debt ceiling and the Republicans were holding back. And there was some brinkmanship going on there that finally got resolved when the Republicans agreed to raise the debt ceiling. So what is the debt ceiling? Well, listen, the U.S. government spends more in money than it collects in taxes. So basically it borrows to make up the shortfall. The government, and this happens obviously with all governments, but we're talking about the U.S. here, They borrow money by issuing bonds, and the debt limit is the total amount of money that the U.S. government is authorized to borrow to meet its legal obligations. And those legal obligations are social security payments, Medicare benefits, military salaries, interest on the national debt, tax refunds, etc. So a lot of obligations of the U.S. government. And it's important to look at sort of what the debt limit is. And what it does not do is it doesn't authorize new spending. So the debt limit basically just allows the government to finance existing legal obligations that Congresses have made in the past. This is not part of the current government's plans to spend on infrastructure or anything else. This is just to pay for things that are already approved and being spent. And this debt limit, I think it was about 100 years ago or something that Congress established this limit on how much debt the government could accumulate. And they established that limit just to prevent governments from spending too much more than they could afford to. But I believe the debt limit has been raised something like, I don't know, 75 or 80 times in the last 100 years because that's just the way it is. So what would happen if Congress failed to increase the debt limit? Well, I think the economic consequences would be pretty massive. So first of all, if they didn't increase the debt limit, then the government wouldn't be able to do any additional borrowing and it would not be able to meet its legal obligations. Meaning, as I said earlier, so social security payments might cease for a time, military salaries would cease, some child tax credits wouldn't get paid, etc. And that would cause a real problem because all of those people that receive those benefits would have a real cash flow problem. That would cause a real problem in the world because the U.S. Treasury bill rate is known as the risk-free rate. So in essence, if they didn't raise the debt ceiling and they defaulted on their payments all of a sudden the global risk-free rate is no longer a risk-free rate. Well, that's right. And what would happen, obviously, is interest rates would skyrocket because investors would demand a higher interest rate given that there would now be risk seen in holding U.S. government bonds, whereas currently, as you say, they're seen as no risk. So a recession... Listen, is it a big surprise that they actually got the deal done, though? I mean, don't you feel like they were going to get the deal done regardless Yes. I mean, this is is just an opinion. Everyone has opinions about U.S. politics, I guess, or many people do, and I certainly do. 
but it would seem unlikely that if pushed to the edge, either side would allow the U.S. government to default on its obligations because the consequences to all Americans and all political parties and everybody involved would be massive. Certainly, it would trigger a recession. And that's not me talking, that's Janet Yellen. What does she know, though? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And you know what? Listen, even back in 2011, there was a standoff in Congress over the debt ceiling. And just that standoff caused U.S. debt to be downgraded for the first time. I think it was recently downgraded too, wasn't it? Well, I know it was back in 2011. I don't know if there's been any further downgrade since, but obviously it would be very, very bad. And basically, if there was a change in risk profile of the U.S. government bonds, then all other borrowing costs would go higher. Things like credit cards, car loans, mortgage rates, etc. So if I was to take a line from Ghostbusters, if they failed to raise the debt limit, it would be bad. That is a good line. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And for that reason, again, is this something that investors should worry about? I mean, I guess it's important to be aware of it. And of course, as we know, anything could happen during the last U.S. administration. I mean, they did stop paying federal workers for some time until there was an agreement on, I think, extending the spending or whatever that process was. So it's something that could theoretically happen, but we believe would be relatively unlikely to happen. Are you talking about that time period of December of 2018 to January of 2019 when the U.S. federal government shut down? Yes, I am. And what happened in the stock market during that roughly 30 days of government shutdown? Do you know? Well, I know that the stock market hit rock bottom on Christmas Eve 2018. From Christmas Eve and on, it started to improve fairly dramatically. Yeah, it was up 10%. The government was shut down. Nobody was getting paid. And the stock market was up 10% in that 30-day or so period. Go figure. Go figure. (laughs) All right, well, let's move on to foreign exchange, and in particular, this strong Canadian dollar. And Greg, I'm going to make a hypothesis here that the strong Canadian dollar that we're experiencing is all because of the strength of oil. And I'm going to tell you why. Please do. So the Canadian dollar right now is trading around 80 cents for every U.S. dollar. And back in March of 2020, it was trading at around 67 cents. So that's quite an improvement, 19.5 or so percent improvement in valuation. But if you look at the price of oil, now the Canadian dollar is very linked to the price of oil. Would you agree? Agreed. So oil back in March of 2020 was trading at $32 per barrel, roughly. And today it's trading just under $80 a barrel. And just in the last 12 months, it's gone up something like 60 or so percent. So here's the question. Is the Canadian dollar strengthening versus the U.S. dollar? Or is the U.S. dollar simply weakening versus the Canadian dollar? And what does it have to do with the fact that oil is up 60% in the last 12 months? Good question. And actually, it could be some of each. But I think they don't call the Canadian dollar a petrodollar for no reason. Yeah, like the Canadian dollar and the Aussie dollar are very similar currencies in that we have a large amount of natural resources That's our main exports for our countries. And so therefore, our home country dollar is impacted by the valuation of those commodities that are exported. So some are calling this or would call it a risk on trade, meaning that it is correlated to a rise in equity prices based on a rise in commodity prices. And that makes sense. So if you think of it, when the price of oil was $32 a barrel, I assume oil company stocks were probably low. And if you look today and oil's at $80 a barrel, you'd assume that oil producing company stocks have gone up quite a bit. Which they have. Which they have. 
So there was an article put out just on October 12th, again, by a place called Interchange Financial. I'm not promoting them, by the way, but it was an interesting article. I'm going to quote them a little bit. The Canadian dollar is holding its impressive gains and trading near its highest level since July against the U.S. dollar and near its highest level since 2017 against the euro. The loony strength is primarily due to surging oil prices. So that makes sense from what we just talked about. The price oil has gone up quite a bit. The value of the Canadian dollar has gone up quite a bit. And so I would say that my own opinion, I'm sure there are those out there with conflicting opinions, sure. that this movement in Canadian dollar pricing should be enjoyed by those that are going to be traveling to the U.S. because I'm not sure if it's actually sustainable at this price level for a long period of time. In the short period of time, who knows? But it's got to be linked to the price of crude. What do you think of that summary? That's pretty heavy stuff. Heavy oil? Heavy Heavy, oil stuff? There you go. Well, actually, that leads into the last part of our discussion today. Because there is an issue with supply chains. You can say it's linked to the energy market, but tell us about supply chains in the world. Well, there's a lot of talk these days about global supply chain issues. And anyone who's tried to rent a car or take delivery of an appliance recently has probably experienced these supply chain issues firsthand. So before we get into it too far, let's talk about what is a supply chain. You're an MBA type of guy. I'm sure you've been through this. But the supply chain... Wait, like there's a limited number of people taking their MBA courses creating a supply chain? Sure, is why not? talking about? Absolutely. Okay, all right. <laughs> there's very few people like you out there. <laughs> oh, there's uh, a lot. So a supply chain, it's the entire process of making and selling commercial goods including every stage from the supply of materials and the manufacture of the goods through to their distribution and sale. So I think most people can sort of get that. Like if you want to make pencils, you have to get whatever it is, the lead for the inside of the pencil, and you got to get the wood and you got to get rubber to make the erasers. Well, and you need that little bit of metal around the yep, rubber. That's, that's right. You know, so pencil. whenever anything that's manufactured or produced or dug out of the ground, it needs to get to the right place on the right time. So why are these supply chain issues so prevalent now? Well, the answer largely lies in COVID. When you look back to March of 2020, the world essentially shut down in the spring of 2020 and well into the summer. And so what happened is that lots of factories that manufacture key components of everything shut down. So for example, I think even back then you were looking maybe to buy yourself a new bicycle. And it was virtually impossible. You cannot buy a bicycle. You cannot buy a skateboard, which I tried to buy for my daughter. And it's because the manufacturing was all shut down. So what happened? So all these manufacturing companies shut down. And if you look at in the rental car industry, when COVID hit, a lot of those rental car companies sold off their fleets because nobody was traveling. The cars were sitting idle anyway. These companies figured they could go buy more cars later when things got back to normal. But what happened is, because of the shutdown of many factories, and in this case, semiconductors or microchips that are used in vehicles, new vehicles, there's now a worldwide shortage of those semiconductors that, again, resulted from the plant closures in Asia last year, and therefore millions and millions of cars that should have been built were not built because of the shortage of those semiconductor components. And so now you've got a lot of competition for new cars. Rental car companies need to replace their fleets Lots of individuals want to buy new cars and there's tons of demand and there's just not the availability of those new cars anymore. Let's talk about that supply demand curve there because you just pointed out, I mean, the demand stayed constant, but the supply shrunk. So the price 
has to go up. That's right. We were talking about this a number of episodes ago when we were talking about inflation and used car prices do not figure into the Canadian inflation numbers, but they do in the U.S. And used car prices are really moving up. They're skyrocketing because of the lack of availability of new cars. So fewer new cars, then more demand for used cars and the prices go up. So the other thing with COVID, what happened, and it was counterintuitive, but consumer demand for stuff, and when I say stuff, I mean all sorts of things, whether it's bicycles, exercise equipment, motor vehicles, people weren't traveling. They were staying home and they were reallocating funds from what they might have spent under normal circumstances to other things like whether it was renovating their homes, buying exercise or leisure equipment, things like that. So what happened is this demand for lots of things exceeded the ability of manufacturing facilities to keep up with. And so we're seeing these supply chain issues are filtering down through all sorts of products. I have a good friend who's been waiting for a new refrigerator and stove for about the last six months. And if he's lucky, he'll get it in the next two to three months. (laughs) That's not the way it used to be. There's other issues in the supply chain. So it's not just the manufacturing of these things, it's the transportation of products and materials. And so what happened is there's now shortages of shipping containers. Well, because they're all being used to build houses now. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's congestion at international ports. There's problems in the trucking industry. There's shortages of drivers. So there's not enough drivers to drive the trucks that you need to get on the road to move stuff around. And this is all contributing to that supply chain crunch. And then on top of it all, if you remember back, I think it was back in May or something or in the spring, there was a massive container ship named the Ever Given, not Ever Grand, as we were talking about earlier. This ship got stuck in the Suez Canal, which is a major shipping route for products from Asia to the West. And it took six days to free it. So to recover from those six days of no ships moving through the Suez Canal, it took months to recover. So... Anything can happen. And you look at what supply chain issues have affected. I mentioned autos, certainly food. If you can believe it, carbonated beverage, there's a shortage of CO2. (laughs) iPhones, electronics, bicycles, Christmas decorations, sporting shoes, and sportswear due to problems in Vietnam where a lot of these things are made. So supply chain will affect the availability of goods. As you pointed out, lack of supply or shortage of supply strong demand, higher prices. And therefore, we've got those supply chain issues feeding into the inflation discussion that we just had. And again, are these transitory? Likely, because issues like this usually get resolved. The supply-demand imbalance usually finds a way to even out over time. So there's transitory issues around shipping ports, shipping containers, truck drivers, but these will work themselves out over time. Will it have an effect on, say, the markets? Possibly in the short term, will it make a dent in the long-term trajectory of the markets? Likely not. Well, I ran into this when I was looking at some rental cars. You mentioned rental cars. Yes. We were looking to go away after Christmas to a certain place and been there many times and rental cars for a week usually cost about, I don't know, $30 a day. So what's that? $210 for a week or something like that. Guess how much they are now? I'm going to guess more than that. Just by a lot. Yeah. So the same seven-day period, if you pay now to secure your price, it's $1,100 for that week. Right on. So about three to four times. Or five. Five X. So that's quite, quite a change. But 
okay, look, we've been kind of doom and gloom and that kind of stuff about some of the stuff. But the point of it is, what can you do about all of it? And we've talked about this many times. We're going to sound like broken records, but it's because it's what works. I'm going to start us off here, Greg. Number one, focus on your asset allocation. That question should have been answered in your financial planning or financial planning discussions about determining how much risk capacity and risk tolerance you have and you need to achieve your goals. So when you run into a short-term situation, like a hopefully short-term, a supply chain issue, it's not putting you off your long-term retirement plans. Right? right on. What else can we do? We can rebalance our portfolios regularly. So once we've got an asset allocation strategy in place, the portfolio is not going to maintain those exact proportions. And so over time, we have to make sure we don't drift too far from the asset mix strategy and rebalance back to it. Exactly. And ignore the headlines or instead of ignoring them, treat them as entertainment advice. So the question that we get, like I said, about Evergrande, that's interesting to follow. I'm not sure if it's going to have much impact on us here. I hope not, but it's interesting to read about. Absolutely. And as we've always talked, make sure that you're paying the lowest fees and expenses that you can. There's high cost investment options out there and there's low cost investment options and making sure you're heading towards the appropriate cost for the nature of the investments you're making. That's the key. And that would include tax tax rates too. Monitor your tax rates. And lastly, I would say as we're heading into, well, we're well into the fall, we've been through Thanksgiving. We're on our way to Christmas. I was just reminded the other day that Christmas is less than 70 days away, which is kind of crazy to think about. Well, Rest and digest. So don't get caught up in these headlines. Know that if you've done the proper planning, you've laid the proper foundation, just having a longer term perspective will help. That's right. And I think it gets back to the discussion we had back in the early days of COVID. And that is that it's easy to imagine bad things happening. And that's the wall of worry that we talked about earlier. And there couldn't have been much more bad to worry about than when we got into this global pandemic and the entire world essentially came to a halt for a period of time. That was pretty bad. And if you look at how it worked out, one of the strongest stock markets we've had in decades. Ever. And so while you could predict all sorts of bad things happening, in the end, things generally work out because over time, what happens? Economies grow, companies become more profitable, and things just in the end, they generally have taken care of themselves. And you just sometimes need to wait it out, but there's really not much you can do other than have the right strategy and, as you say, rest and digest. Well, I think that does it for today. I think we've run out of time. So thanks for joining us today. Remember to give us a rating on your, well, wherever you download our podcast from. And if there's any topics you want us to cover, just let us know. We're happy to dive into pretty much anything within reason. All right. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. 
This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2021.